Thank you for listening to the Faith Bible Church podcast. If you'd like to check out more resources or donate to this ministry, please visit us at faithbiblemd.org. Back when I was in seminary, I was looking for a ministry opportunity, full-time pastorate, a job, a way to stay in the country. After all, I was on a student visa, and once the visa, uh, once I graduated, the visa would no longer be valid. I was told the military is always looking for chaplains, so I thought, well, maybe I'll become a military chaplain. You know, you know, maybe there's a way Canadians can get in. We're good allies, eh? Nope. Uh, I, I was I was coaching at the school, and maybe maybe I could carve out a spot here on the the staff at the school, and uh, you know do the sports and uh, maybe the admissions department, be as already recruiting for the basketball team anyways, trying to get kids admitted into the school. Uh, it was a vision I'd had since I first came out of college. I uh, had some success coaching high school basketball and I uh, always wanted to take that to the next level and uh, you know see if I could make a career out of coaching. But while I was coaching at the, the college, uh, the team was horrible. It was, it was very embarrassing. And the funny thing is that this uh, really good ball player showed up while I was coaching. This fellow was like six foot six and could shoot lights out and could jump out of the gym. And I recruited him to come play on on my pitiful team. And uh, he instantly would have made us competitive. But he was academically ineligible at the time. He needed to do some basic proficiency classes at community college before he could pass admission standards. Uh, He got that done the year after I left. And then he came to school, and then at the same time, a couple of other ball players arrived, and uh, Washington Bible College won the conference, and they won a small Christian school national championship. Two years after I left, they had a great team. And even though I recruited that kid, I never got to coach him. Meanwhile, when I was coaching, I had players who had no business being on a college team. And <laughs> probably the worst team in all of America. No kidding. And I know why that was. I know why I was suffering such crushing defeat as a college coach. Because I sucked at coaching? No. Uh, Couldn't have been me. Uh, Because the players had no talent? Well, yes. Well, no, no. We did have some talented players. That wasn't the real reason. The reason why I bombed at coaching at the college level was because that was not the career path God had in store for me. He did not send me to seminary to get a master of divinity so I could be a college basketball coach at a small Bible school that was going to go bankrupt and close his doors in seven years. And God knew if I had any success in coaching, I would have been, if I won a bunch of games, I would have been diving back into that world trying to become a professional coach. So he let me fail miserably so I wouldn't get distracted with the plans that he had for me. At the time, it was painful. But now it's an entertaining story and a great sermon illustration like everything else in my life. Today's title is Moses Failed Leadership, Trying to Do Things Without God. Maybe this will help make some sense of any failures that you are experiencing. And perhaps this study can give you some perspective on what God may be doing when it doesn't seem like He's doing anything. Well, let's start in Hebrews. Our study is still through the book of Hebrews, chapter 24, but I guarantee we're going to be all over the place this morning. But we'll start with this passage, 
Hebrews 11:24 by faith Moses when he had grown up refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter choosing rather to endure ill treatment with the people of God than to enjoy the passing pleasures of sin considering the reproach of Christ greater riches than the treasures of Egypt for he was looking for looking to the reward by faith he left Egypt not fearing the wrath of the king for he endured as seeing him who is unseen. So this passage is referring to Exodus chapter 3, after Moses meets God. The phrase, as seeing him who is unseen, well, that's a reference to when God, when Moses first met God in the burning bush, right? But before we get to that encounter, before we get into all that, and I don't know how long it's going to study Moses, but, you know, we'll see. I want to take a moment to, to look at what happened in Moses' life prior to the burning bush. And we actually have a little bit about that in Acts chapter 7. Turn to Acts chapter 7. And this is a part of the speech that, Sir, that Stephen gives right before the people stoned him to death. Quite a sermon. After you're done speaking, the audience pelts you with stones until you're dead. On occasion, people get offended with my sermons and they get up and walk out mid-message. I bet you can figure out what issues I'm addressing when that happens. God's word is very politically incorrect. And when I express his views, uh, sometimes people get up and walk out. And uh, I find that kind of distracting. I'm like always like, uh-oh, I hit a nerve. And I feel bad about that. I never want to offend anyone, even if I'm telling them the truth, but often it can't be helped. Jesus is a rock of offense. And the word of the Lord is always offensive to people who do not want to believe it. So Stephen was the first follower of Jesus to be put to death, but he wasn't the last. It's still going on today. It is a common occurrence Christian Post uh, reported on Thursday, June 22nd, that at least 700 Christians were reportedly killed in Nigeria during the month of May, according to a report released by the International Society for Civil Liberties and Rule of Law. One of the bloodiest episodes of anti-Christian violence in the country's history, the North Central Plateau State was reported to be most impacted, particularly in the Mangu County, the report alleged that a minimum of 300 Christians were slaughtered over a span of three days, May 15th to May 17th in that state. Also reported that at least 1,100 Christians were killed between April 12th to June 12th. That's like 17 deaths per day. That was going on even now. We, you're not going to hear about that stuff in mainstream media, but it's going on. So I guess I should be grateful people simply leave mid-sermon as opposed to stoning me. But listen to this portion of Stephen's sermon before they hit him with rocks. Uh, 7 verse 22, Acts 7 verse 22, talking about Moses, he says, Moses was educated in all the learning of the Egyptians and he was a man of power in words and deed. But when he was approaching the age of 40, it entered his mind to visit his brethren, the sons of Israel, and when he saw one of them being treated unjustly, he defended him and took vengeance for the oppressed by striking down the Egyptian. 
And he supposed that his brethren understood that God was granting them deliverance through him, but they did not understand. Well, on the following day, he appeared to them as they were fighting together. And he tried to reconcile them to peace, saying, men, you are brethren. Why do you injure one another? But the one who was injuring his neighbor pushed him away, saying, who made you a ruler and judge over us? You do not mean to kill me as you killed the Egyptian yesterday, do you? At that remark, Moses fled and became an alien in the land of Midian, where he became the father of two sons. After 40 years had passed, an angel appeared to him in the wilderness, Mount Sinai, in the flame of the burning bush. So, you remember last week, right? Yeah. <clears throat> Moses was raised by his mother in a Jewish home, but once he was weaned, he went to live as Pharaoh's daughter's son. He became Pharaoh's grandson. So what age did he transition from the slave home to the royal home? The Bible doesn't say, but says after he was weaned. Now, in ancient times, weaning was a kind of a slower process than it is now. Uh, we know science today tells us that mother's milk is an excellent natural source of antibodies. So three years was normal for a child to be on the mother's milk. Furthermore, I suspect weaning includes more than just breastfeeding, but potty training, I suspect that would have been the other part of the assignment, right? The princess of Egypt is not going to want to potty train a kid. So probably, you know, Moses' mom had to deal with that job. Uh, what else? What else do you learn in those years? How to feed yourself, put on your clothes, right? How to talk. Lots to learn in the first couple years of life. It, it reminded me of a similar thing that happened in 1 Samuel. You remember uh, Samuel, little, little little baby Samuel, Hannah had Samuel, and he was taken to live with Eli in the temple once he was weaned. Uh, and then look at, for, look at 1 Samuel chapter uh, 1, just to make this observation here to you. Uh, 1 Samuel chapter 21, chapter 1, verse 21, uh, it says, Then the man Elkaniah went up with all his household to offer to the Lord the yearly sacrifice and pay his vows. So that's Hannah's husband. But Hannah did not go up, for she said to her husband, I will not go up until the child is weaned. Then I will bring him up that he might appear before the Lord and stay there forever. So we know he promised to give Samuel over to the Lord. So verse 24, now when she had weaned him, she took him up with her with a three-year-old bowl and an ephod of flour and a jug of wine and brought him to the house of the Lord in Shiloh. Although the child was young, and then we see like chapter two, verses one through 10 is Hannah's song. And she's praising the Lord. Uh, and then verse 11, chapter two, 11, Elkaniah went to his home in Ramah, but the boy, so that's Samuel, ministered to the Lord before Eli the priest. And then again, that's said in chapter 2, verse 18, Samuel was ministering before the Lord as a boy wearing a linen ephod. So it says he's ministering. The little guy is ministering, doing temple duties. So it means he's old enough to understand and follow some instructions. So my personal opinion is, based on that observation, is that these children who are weaned 
the earliest that would have been would have been probably around five years old, maybe older. And the reason why that sparks my interest is because of what it said here in Acts chapter 7, verse 23, where it talks about Moses. When he approached the age of 40, it entered his mind to visit his brethren, the sons of Israel. See, Moses knows he's not Egyptian. He knows he's an Israelite. And later on, we see at the scene of the burning bush, he even knows his brother Aaron, his older brother Aaron. If Moses had gone from living in uh, Pharaoh's house at the age of two or three, like when he just got done breastfeeding, he wouldn't have known, he wouldn't have remembered about his birth family. So he had to be there long enough to be taught who he was, who his family was, who his siblings were. And at the age of 40, he's still thinking about them. He has in his mindset that God wants him to deliver his people from bondage. Verse 25, and he, uh, Acts 7, verse 25, I know I'm all over the place. He supposed that his brethren understood that God was granting them deliverance through him, but they did not understand. Where would he have come up with that idea that God was going to use him to deliver them? Well, I suspect his mom and his dad, when he was a little guy, were telling him, you know, Moses, one day you're going to go live with the queen of Egypt. One day you're going to be Pharaoh's grandson. You're going to go live over there because God saved you from death. God saved you from the Nile. And he has got a plan for you, Moses. He's going to use you to deliver us from slavery. He's going to use you to deliver us from bondage. Don't forget about us, Moses, when you're in Egypt. Don't forget about your mom and dad. Don't forget about your brothers and sisters. I won't, mommy, I promise. So he gets in his head when he's 40. I got to help my brother. I got to rally them. I got to lead them. I got to deliver them. And why not? After all, he's royalty. He's educated in the king's palace. Uh, Acts 7.22, Moses was educated in all the learning of the Egyptians. He was a man of power in words. Remember that. He's a man of power in words and deeds. He's connected to power. He has all the resources. He's young, but not too young. He's old, but not too old. He'd be the perfect one for the job. When you are young, you have these great aspirations to do great things and make a change in the world. And we assume, you know, people understand that we're here to help and we have great ideas and we have, we have the answers. But then we get this rude awakening that people don't understand how awesome our ideas are. People aren't all that interested in our visions and our big plans to help. Uh, Moses gets hit with this. Acts 7, 25, he supposed his brother understood that God was granting them deliverance through him, but they did not understand. Well, Moses' great idea delivers his people, results in him killing a man, being criticized by his brethren, who he's trying to stand up for. And then we see in the story of Exodus that Pharaoh finds out and he wants to kill him. Acts uh, 2, 15, Pharaoh heard about the matter. He tried to kill Moses. Moses fled from the presence of Pharaoh, settled in the land of Midian, and sat down by a well. So he's now a fugitive. He has to leave the country, and he's out hiding for how long? 40 years. I think this is a very interesting part of Moses' life story. Humanly speaking, practically speaking, when Moses was 40 and in a position of power, that was the time for him to step up and lead humanly speaking, but it wasn't God's time. For whatever reason, right idea, 
wrong time. But because Moses tries to execute in his own strength, he all but destroys himself. And I think this is an important observation, especially for maybe the younger portion of the congregation of the demographic here. We have these great ideas of what we want to do. We have visions and dreams, and it all may be very good stuff. But when you try to execute these ideas in your own strength, you will find out that the world does not care and will chew you up and spit you out. And this verse kind of proves my point. The psalmist writes, Unless the Lord builds the house, they labor in vain who build it. Unless the Lord guards the city, the watchman stays awake in vain. You see, Moses wanted to save the nation of Israel. But even being royalty, he wasn't strong enough to do it. And all of his actions were in vain. And we too, you know, we look at our country and we think, you know, if we just get the right person, we get the right candidate to come into power, you know, and fix the nation. You know, somebody comes along and he's, he's not an outsider, he's not a politician, this business, billionaire businessman in four years and the most powerful office in the land. And what happened? Despite all of his power and all of his money and nothing changed. Couldn't stop the illegal immigration, couldn't balance the budget and stop the ridiculous theft of taxpayer money, didn't fix the health care system, didn't stem the tide of immorality in our land. One person cannot take down a satanically empowered empire. And they make no mistake, that's exactly what Washington, D.C. is. Just like every other world empire in all of human history, Rome, Greece, Persia, Assyria, Egypt, Babylon, they're all satanically empowered empires. I'm not making this up. This is what was said between Jesus and Satan. Remember? Satan takes Jesus when he was tempting him in the wilderness, takes him up a very high mountain, shows him the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he says, all these, Satan says, these are all mine. I'll give them to you. You fall down and worship me. And Jesus says, go, Satan, for it's written, you shall worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Notice Jesus doesn't refute Satan's claim. He doesn't say, that's not true, Satan. The kingdoms of this world are not yours, Satan. Doesn't, doesn't refute that. Do you think our nation is any different? This is the White House this month. According, probably a lot of you military folks know this, but according to U.S. flag code, in the United States, no other flag should be placed above the American flag or if they are placed at the same level to the right of the American flag, the American flag should be at the center and at the highest point when displayed in a group of flags. But look what's at center stage. And what does this display at the White House communicate? Who's in power here? Who's controlling this kingdom? Well, I would submit to you the same person who's been controlling all the kingdoms of the world. There is a God of this nation, but it's not Jesus. The Roman governor Pontius Pilate asked Jesus if he was the king of the Jews, meaning the king of Israel. And look what Jesus said. He said, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would be fighting so that you would not 
so I would not be handed over the Jews. But as it is, my kingdom is not of this realm. The United States of America is not Jesus' kingdom. Don't kid yourselves. But Jesus can kick Satan out anytime he wants. And he's going to. Real soon. The cup of indignation is filling up. It's almost full. The wrath of God will soon be poured out. Moses thought he could deliver Israel with his power and his position, and he fell on his face. What Moses had to learn was it would be God delivering Israel. God would use Moses because God and only God has the power to deliver. And the same is true for all of us. It is God who has the power to heal and help and save. God who raises up and tears down kings and kingdoms. God does it in his way, in his time, for his plans and purposes. God's plans, what happens in his time. If it's his plan, it will happen. Nothing will be able to thwart his plans. But if it's not his time, you'll just frustrate yourself and everyone else around trying to force the issue. And James testified to us, James chapter 4, he said, You who say, today, tomorrow, we will go into such and such a city and spend a year there and engage in business and make profit, yet you don't know what your life will be like tomorrow. You are a vapor that appears a little while and then vanishes away. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and also do this and that. If the Lord wills, we have to learn contentment, doing things God's way and waiting patiently for him to open the doors that he wants opened and not trying to always do it in our own strength. And certainly not disobeying God and doing something contrary to his word, but hoping he's going to bless it because, you know, it's what I want. God wants us to learn to be faithful in small things before he gives us bigger things. He wants us to learn contentment. How are you doing on that this morning? What's your contentment level today? Enjoy what he has provided and learn the lessons of this stage of life before you rush on to the next thing that you're more excited about and learn to say, if the Lord wills. Otherwise, you could just end up with a big catastrophe, which Moses did, and he spends 40 years hiding out. And then when he's 80, then, turn to Exodus chapter 3, then God speaks to him. Exodus chapter 3, verse number 1. Now Moses was pastoring the flocks of Jethro, his father-in-law, the priest of Midian, and he led the flocks to the west side of the wilderness, came to Horeb, the mountain of God. The angel of the Lord appeared to him in a blazing fire from the midst of the bush, and he looked, and behold, the bush was burning without fire, yet the bush was not consumed. So Moses said, I must turn aside now and see this marvelous sight. Why the bush is not burned up? When Moses saw, or when the Lord saw that he turned aside to look, God called to him from the midst of the bush and said, Moses, Moses, he says, here I am. He says, do not come near here. Remove your sandals from your feet for the place that you're standing is holy ground. And he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face. He was afraid to look at God. Pick it up at verse number nine. 
God says, behold, the city, the, behold, the cry of the sons of Israel has come up to me. Furthermore, I have seen the oppression with which the, the Egyptians are oppressing them. Therefore, now I will send you to Pharaoh so that you may bring my people, the sons of Israel, out of Egypt. But Moses said to God, who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and that I should bring the sons of Israel up out of Egypt? And he said, certainly I will be with you and this will be the sign to you that it will be I who sent you when you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall worship God at this mountain. Chapter four, verses one, Moses said, what if they will not believe me or listen to what I say? For they may say, the Lord did not appear to you. And the Lord said, what is that in your hand? And he said, it's a staff. He said, throw it on the ground. He threw it on the ground. It became a serpent. Moses fled from it. And then the Lord said to Moses, stretch out your hand and grab it by its tail. And that right there, most of us would not be leading the children of Israel because uh, who's, who's going to reach out and grab that snake, right? All of you are like, heck no. Anyways, Moses stretched out his hand, caught it, and it became a staff in his hand that they may believe that the Lord, the God of their fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob has appeared to you. Verse number 10, still the conversation. Moses said to the Lord, please, Lord, I have never been eloquent, neither recently nor in times past. Now, what did, what did Stephen say about Matt, uh, Moses? He was powerful in word and deed. I've never been eloquent. I'm slow of speech and slow of tongue. So originally, Moses is confident in, in, in power, in word and deed. He assumes, well, God's going to use me to deliver the people. He even kills for his vision. Now, 40 years later, when God actually does call him and commission him to deliver his people, Moses got all these excuses. I can't speak and nobody will listen to me. And he's so full of self-doubts. And this is the other challenge. Not wanting to do anything from God. And where I was kind of banging on the younger people about patience, I think this one might be for maybe the older part of the demographic this morning. Maybe. Moses goes from wanting to do things in his own strength, in his own time, and then he swings hard the other way. Moses doesn't want to do anything, and he's lost all his confidence. And this is often what happens to people when they can't get what they want when they want it. They become bitter and disillusioned and they disconnect. Things aren't going the way I planned. Fine, I'm going to go to the wilderness for the next 40 years and do nothing. Well, neither one is the right mindset. Moses is arguing with God. Nobody will listen to me. I can't speak. Get someone else. That's not the right answer. So Moses goes from right idea, wrong time to Right time, wrong attitude. And here's something I've noticed about folks who go into ministry and they want to serve the Lord. And I've been around people who are going into ministry my whole life, okay? I grew up in a Bible school where people are studying to go into ministry. And I, too, went to seminary. And I was seven years around people preparing to go into ministry. And I've been in full-time ministry for 30 years now. So I've seen a lot of this. Many times, good Christian people who want to change the world and serve the Lord full time in ministry think they have these ideas and that every idea that they have is divinely inspired. 
Every vision they visualize, every ministry initiative that they wish to pursue is the will of God. And if the people would just follow them, if the people would be committed to their vision, if, as if they were following Jesus, then it would just be fantastic and we'd change the world. But you know what people, they're trying to lead to? Just like they did to Moses. They don't understand and they ask a lot of questions and they disagree and the people got their own ideas and preferences of what and how and when and where they would like to be ministered to and they don't get on board with the ministry leader's divinely inspired vision and then the leader gets frustrated, he gets angry and hurt and he tax the people for not supporting his obviously divinely inspired vision. And the leader gets frustrated and angry, hurt, and doesn't want to lead anymore. I'm offended. I'm burned out. I quit. But here's the thing about ministry. I'm not called to lead and dictate and command, order, decree. I'm called to Minister, serve, feed, help, love, and above all else, obey God. We pastors like to preach sermons to the congregation in which we teach you it's not about you. You're to yield your life to God, but sometimes we forget we're not God. And the principle applies to us too. It's not about us either. One time an angry church member compared me to Hitler. <laughs> I was like, oh, my bad. I was trying to build a church. I didn't realize I was actually building a concentration camp here. I was like, miscommunication. I didn't like my leadership, so I just kind of moved on to another spot. But I had to evaluate, right? I had to, I had to look at what I was doing. I made some mental notes about the decisions I was making and the things I was saying, and I concluded, okay, that probably wasn't the best approach to leadership. Obviously, since a bunch of people aren't following me, they don't want me to lead. I was hurt, that's true. But it also means that I needed to learn how to lead effectively. Because if people aren't following, that really says something about you as a leader. You know, I remember when I first started at Faith Bible Church, there was another church in the community, just a quarter of a mile down the road, and they were shutting down. And the pastor was saying, people don't want the word. That's why the church is closing, because people here in St. Mary's, they don't want the Word of God. And I was like, well, I don't know. There's some people at Faith Bible Church kind of like hearing the Word of God. And 16 years later, the amount of people that show up and listen online is quadrupled. And a lot of churches have grown in St. Mary's County. A lot of churches have been planted and growing too. So I don't think it's that people don't want to hear the Word of God. I just probably more so they just didn't want to hear Him. Israel doesn't want to follow Moses, and this is true. But once God shows his power through Moses, once God pours out the plagues on Egypt, once God proves that he's more powerful than the magicians of Egypt, the Pharaoh of Egypt, the God of Egypt, the gods of Egypt, once God parts the Red Sea and saves the children of Israel from the armies of Egypt, and once God drowns the armies of Egypt, the Red Sea, the people absolutely want to follow Moses. There's a change there, isn't there? So back to Hebrews chapter 11. Still in verse 24. 
by faith Moses, when he grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to endure ill treatment with the people of God rather than enjoy the passing pleasures of sin, considered the reproach of Christ greater than the riches and the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking for a reward. By faith he left Egypt, not fearing the wrath of the king. He endured as seeing him who is unseen. We know when Moses finally grew up and considered the reproach of Christ greater than the riches and the treasures of Egypt, it wasn't when he was 40. It was when he stopped trying to do things his way and he started obeying God. The reproach of Christ, that's an interesting phrase there. I was pondering that. That's a, it's an interesting phrase to describe Moses' attitude, the reproach of Christ. Moses was, you know, 1,500 years prior to Christ. When did he meet Jesus? Well, the reproach of Christ is not simply people rejecting Jesus Christ. The term Christ, other terms we use is Messiah, uh, anointed one. Ever since the prophecy was given that the seed of Eve would crush the serpent's head, there has been a war, a rejection, a reproach of the Messiah. Reproach, the Greek word, is on uh, dismos, means suffering for the cause of God. Suffering inflicted by the enemies of God. There is a war going on. Just like Stephen was stoned and our brothers and sisters who are dying in Nigeria today, there has always been suffering, reproach heaped upon the people of God for the sake of Christ, for the sake of God's plan. All the oppression suffered by the nation of Israel by the Egyptians was a satanic fueled hate because they were God's anointed, God's chosen people. And that's a reoccurring theme all throughout the Bible, all the way until the very end when the Antichrist stages the world's armies on the plains of Megiddo and tries to wipe Israel off the face of the map once for all. But then the Messiah, Jesus, shows up and delivers them. The story of Exodus will repeat itself time and time again in Scripture, all throughout the history of Israel until that final great battle of Armageddon where Jesus the Messiah does crush the serpent and takes control of the whole world. Moses is a type of the Messiah, a chosen one sent by God to deliver the nation. And once he assumes the role and confronts the gods of Egypt and leads the people, he suffers the reproach of Christ. But he's not suffering it when he's in Midian. He's just chilling with the sheep. He's not experiencing any ill treatment then. It doesn't start until he decides to obey God and then confront the satanically fueled evil empire of Egypt and Pharaoh. And it says here, for he was looking for a reward, verse 26. By faith he left Egypt, not fearing the wrath of the king, for he endured as seeing him who was unseen. What's the reward? What was the reward he was looking for? Well, God told him what the reward would be in Exodus chapter 3 when he was calling him at the burning bush. God said, I will bring you out of the affliction of Egypt to the land of the Canaanites, Hittites, Amorites, Persicites, Hivites, the Jebusites, to a land flowing with milk and honey. And of course, that's another idiom for the promised land, a literal land for Israel. And also, that's a metaphor for us 
that one day we are being led to the promised land and it ain't Maryland, sorry, right? It's kind of nice down here, but it's not Maryland. The promised land is that home that Jesus is preparing when he said, I go to prepare a place for you. If it were not so, I would have told you. If I go, I will come again and receive you unto myself. That's our promised land. So it says, he endured as seeing him who is unseen. Once again, that's the burning bush where Moses encountered God for the first time, where he hears God say, Exodus chapter three, verse 10, therefore come now, I will send you to Pharaoh so that you might bring my people, the sons of Israel, out of Egypt. It's all well and good that Moses' dad and mom told him, Moses, you're going to deliver us one day. But it wasn't going to happen until God said, Moses, you will bring my people out of Egypt. And that's when God was ready to deliver. So what can we learn from our failures? Are we trying to do the right thing at the wrong time in our own strength? Have we gotten mad and quit because things aren't going our way, as opposed to being humble and learning from our failures? Are we listening to the voice of God? Are we doing things contrary to his word, but hoping God will bless us anyways? No matter what our big plans may be this morning, we ought to learn to say, if the Lord wills. Because if he does, we will have great success. But if he doesn't will, it's just going to be a mess. We're going to hurt ourselves and we'll be working against the will of God. So, our failures. Take them as something God wants us to learn from and trust that he will work it out in his way and in his time. And I hope that these words are impactful to somebody here today dealing with some frustrations. It'll give you hope that God's got a plan and may it strengthen your faith to trust him through it. Thank you, Lord, for your message today. Thank you for Moses and this so unique, interesting time in his life where he falls on his face and those details are given to us, even though Moses is a highly revered uh, person in the scriptures and in the nation of Israel, yet he struggled and failed and learned. And we too, Lord, may we learn from our hurts and pains and our failures. May we learn to trust you and wait on you and not give up our faith. And Lord, we know that ultimately, Jesus, you are coming back. We know ultimately you are going to make all things new. And that is our glorious hope. That is the hope of the resurrection. That is the hope of eternal life. And that is the hope that we have for righteousness and justice in our land. Never are we going to see it till you show up, Jesus, and you take control. And we long for that day. We pray for that day. We believe in you, Jesus. And we say, even so, come, Lord Jesus. Give us faith to endure till that time. Praying a blessing upon all the folks here today. In your name, in Jesus' name.